So I'd like you to, if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and uh, there is a Bible app event for this. Um, if you have the Bible app, you can click that little um, menu on it, and you can load up the live event near you. We're going to be talking about the visit of the Magi, or as tradition would call them, the wise men uh, who came to see the baby Jesus. And I want us to do, just for fun, I want us to do a responsive reading, so don't get real comfortable yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to read the portion that says leader on that side of the screen. And then you, being led by Drew, will lead the portion that says congregation. And then when they're centered, we will read those words together, okay? It's kind of an old-fashioned liturgical kind of neat thing to do together as a church family. And just out of reverence for God's word, would you please stand as we do it? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Oh, those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called. Wonderful Wonderful Counselor, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Everlasting Father, Father, Prince Prince of of Peace. Peace. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. In the early 70s, um, some people were chatting about politics. They were talking about who might make a good president for the United States of America. That was a day where you could talk about politics and people wouldn't get angry with you. That was a day where, I know some of you are looking like, what are you, you crazy? That doesn't happen. That was a day where my mom could say to her sister-in-law, I'm voting for the exact opposite person that you're voting for, and they still had Thanksgiving dinner together and never thought a thing about it, right? I long for those days. So in the 70s, this group of people were talking about who would make a, a good president, and there were some children present, and one little redheaded, about 10-year-old boy spoke up. And he said this, Bobby Fisher. Bobby Fisher would make a great president. Now, some of you are thinking that's a classmate of that 10-year-old, but it's not. Bobby Fisher was a brilliant chess master. Um, later, that 10-year-old would read a book called Bobby Fisher Teaches Chess. Bobby Fisher is reported to have had an IQ of 181. In 1972, He did his country well, made us proud. When he defeated Spassky, the world champion of the evil Soviet Union, Fisher didn't just beat him, he spanked him at chess. If anyone should be president, that's who should be president. I mean, good night, Bobby Fisher, we should vote for him for king of the world, right? Now, I'm not going to tell you who that 10-year-old was, lest you think of me lest you think of him (laughs) as a complete nerd. (laughs) But as it happened, Fisher's intelligence didn't bode well. His intelligence didn't qualify him to be president. Let me tell you a couple things about his life, and you can decide for yourself if you would vote for him. For a season in his life, Bobby Fisher couldn't figure out how to provide adequate housing for himself. And he lived as a homeless man. That's a little bit of a hindrance to getting your name on the ballot. 
from time to time, he made not just politically incorrect statements, but terrible statements. Anti-Semitic rants, despite the fact that his mother was Jewish. On a radio broadcast, he celebrated the 9-11 attacks on New York City, Washington, D.C., and Somerset, Pennsylvania. He disobeyed mandates from the U.S. government concerning where he could travel so that he actually became a fugitive from justice. The U.S. government wanted him. He knew he couldn't come back. It was difficult for him to find a country that would take him. And finally, he found refuge in Iceland, one of the few countries that was willing to grant him citizenship. Eventually, Fisher died of kidney failure at age 65. He didn't believe in dialysis. He didn't believe in Western medication. He didn't believe in transplant. And so he died. Just for the record, in case anyone ever asks you, I do not want to live in Iceland. (laughs) I do not want to die in Iceland. I'm thinking if Iceland is the only place that you can figure out that you can find citizenship, you have probably made some pretty bad chess moves in this game called life. Fisher stands, in my mind, as a premier example of how dramatically wisdom differs from intelligence. And that IQ of 181 didn't serve to give him what he needed to live well. One documentary, um, someone speaking in it made this statement. His life ended in misery. And that 10-year-old boy that thought Bobby Fischer would make a great president, that boy had a lot to learn about wisdom, about life. So I ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 2. It is our Advent Bible text for the day. And we're going to look at some men who had wisdom and they journeyed in wisdom. They're the wise men of the Christmas story. And I know they're not called wise men in most modern translations, but they're called magi. (laughs) But in ancient times, Countries that were east of Israel, do you know what they called their magi? Wise men. <laughs> so I'm going to call them that. If you need to know about that, if you must, go ahead and look later at the first chapter of Esther and you will see that that is the case. So today we're going to call them wise men and we're going to read what the Bible says about them. There's a dozen verses. If you have your Bibles open, you can follow along. If not, you can just listen. We're going to read this account of their visit to the baby Jesus. Chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Who is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. 
And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay, so let's ask the basic question. Who are these guys? What are some of their characteristics? If you're not curious about that, the question, who are these wise men, then maybe you're not a wise man or a wise woman because one of the first things I notice about wise men is that they are curious. They're curious. You know, in school, there's two kinds of students. There's the kind of students that learns just so they can get through the class. That's what I was. And then there's the kind of student that learns so they can learn. You know the difference? And these wise men, they're the second kind. Several centuries earlier, Daniel and his friends would have been accounted, or would have been counted rather, as being among these men. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 4, they're described as young men without physical defect, handsome, and then showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Wise men. Wise men. Our story leads some people to question Were these wise men astrologers or astronomers? And the answer is yes. That's the answer, yes. I've heard the argument. In fact, I used to make the argument that these men were not astrologers. They were astronomers. You know the difference, right? An astrologer in modern times is someone who we see as superstitiously reading the stars to tell you if you should marry Joe or if you should marry Harold. You know, astrologers, right? Uh, Astronomers, they work for NASA. They look through telescopes and stuff like that. That's, that's the difference. And from what I've read, the ancients really made no distinction between these two. But here's what you need to know about them. These wise men were curious men who scanned the heavens for a sign of anything unusual, and God gave them that sign. It was an invitation. They were curious. They were from the East. It's not really a characteristic, but it's something I do want to talk about for a moment. Because you can get confused by the King James language. When you're reading the King James Bible in Matthew 2, verse 2, it says, Where is he that is born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the East, and we have come to worship him. Now, if they're from the East, and they see a star in the East, then they would go the other direction. Think about it. Can you imagine that? Can you do the geography in your head? If Israel, Jerusalem, is right here, And wise men come from the east, which would be right here, because they saw a star in the east and followed it, then they're going the wrong way, right? So the King James can kind of be a little bit confusing there. You can't blame the translators, though. Modern translations clue us in by noting that that phrase, in the east, can easily be translated, just as easily be translated, as when it rose. And that's why the NIV says, we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. The wise men are coming from the east because they saw a star rising, the star that marked the birth of the king of the Jews. If it's important to you, I will also note (laughs) that these uh, wise men traditionally are thought of as coming from Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, or from Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Uh, There's other scholarship that says, no, they came from the Arabian Peninsula, perhaps Saudi Arabia, maybe as far as Yemen, Uh, maybe, maybe. No one really knows for sure. Here's what we know. Ready? They came from a long way off. They came from a long way off. And this point, you're going to say, wow, this is probably the most profound thing Pastor Steve ever said. These wise men are wise. 
<laughs> yeah, there are people that that think, that ponder, that examine, that desire to know, that don't like being in the dark. Wise men don't walk around in the dark unless they happen to be following a star. They're wise. Wisdom. Wisdom is something to value. I feel like growing up that I really valued intellect. But we've seen it's different than wisdom. Wisdom has great value. One, quote, wisdom study. (laughs) You know, people study that. That's pretty cool. One wisdom study that was cited by the BBC just a few years ago looked at a group of people and concluded this, that the wiser people, the wiser people were, the higher their levels of well-being, particularly as they got older. And then they said this, they said, intelligence made no difference to well-being. Pursuing wisdom, it is something wise men do. It moves them from darkness toward light. Pursuing wisdom, it is something I want us to do so we can move from darkness toward light. This first Sunday of Advent, this communion Sunday, I want you to think a little bit about what does pursuing wisdom actually look like? What does it look like? I think it looks different than you might think. I want you to imagine a conversation between the wise men as they were preparing to go and their next door neighbors. Hey, where are you guys going with this huge entourage? Jerusalem. Why are you going there? To see the king of the Jews and to worship him. Wait, 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 wait. There's a new king in Israel? Where did you hear that? We got the news from a star. You've been talking with a star. Kind of. And you're going to worship a foreign king. Does our king know you're doing that? Because we don't do that. We don't worship foreign kings. Yeah, we are. But this, this isn't just any king. This is a child from God who will be king. And there was a sign in the heavens telling us of his arrival. So let me make sure I have this straight. You're going on a journey of hundreds of miles to see a baby that a star told you would be born so that you can worship him as a foreign king. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. It does sound kind of crazy, doesn't it? It would sound kind of crazy. But somehow or other, God spoke to these wise men And because they were wise, they trusted his leading. And that reminds me that pursuing wisdom is a journey of trust. It's a journey of faith. Have you heard the slogan, trust no one? How many watched the X-Files when it was on? Yeah, wow, what a great show that was, right? Great show, the X-Files. Stupid slogan, trust no one. It's just not wise. Trust no one is a bad slogan. After Bobby Fischer died, someone who knew this chess master said this, he trusted nobody but himself. He was obsessed with his own personality and I think it cost him. Wisdom is a matter of trust, a matter of living by faith in God. And unless you trust, unless you choose to have faith, and without faith, it's actually impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It's a journey of trust, a journey of faith. If you think about it, you could almost say that trust 
is something that is born of hope. Think about the journeys, the treks that move people. Think about the things that move people to take journeys. Think about the desires that move people to take a long, long trip. It could be romance. When my son was dating the woman who is now his wife, he lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She lived in Rochester, New York. They would, he would get in a plane and fly all the way to Dearborn, Michigan, where his sister lived. And she would get in a car and drive all the way over Lake Erie, all the way through Canada over to Dearborn so they could spend a weekend together at, their, at, at Esther's house, his sister's house. Because they wanted to be together and they had hopes for their relationship. Romance can drive you to take a long journey. Wealth or desire for it can cause you to take a long journey. Notoriety, joy, adventure, but underlying all of those things is this thing called hope. Even a hunting trip to Colorado, underlying that is a hope that you'll get the game that you seek. And God, (laughs) he's the giver of hope. He is the dispenser of hope. And he gave it to these wise men as they were looking up into the heavens for any sign of something. He gave them hope when they saw the star. And they trusted what God had given them. They trusted his word. Look how they phrase their question in in verse 2. They say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Here's what they don't say. They don't say, hey, we kind of wondered, you had any remarkable births here lately? We're not sure, but maybe, is there something kind of weird going on? We kind of have a clue that there might be. There was none of that. They trusted. They believed. They dared to hope that God was guiding them. Trust is born of hope. And trust, (laughs) if you will choose to trust, there's something weird about it. It gives you the ability to hang in there with strength, with faith that perseveres. You know, wherever they were from, wherever they were from, we know it wasn't just around the corner. The shepherds, they were just around the corner, out in the fields nearby. They could show up that very night. But by some estimates, the wise men didn't make it for maybe a year or more, which kind of fits with why Herod cut it off at two years of age when he did. Trust hangs in there. It hopes. They pursued wisdom. They pursued the Christ child and moved from darkness to life. What (laughs) pursuing wisdom is a journey of trust, and pursuing wisdom is a journey of worship. I mean, think of what they don't say when they arrive. They they don't say, "Hey, we're some sightseers, and we heard the the king of the Jews is here. We wonder, can can we check him out? Like you're visiting Mount Rushmore." It's not that. They they don't say, "We're on a, a a sort of political assignment here to forge an alliance with the people of Israel." They're not diplomats. They're not here to flex any muscle like, ah, here you have a new king. Well, here we are. They're not carrying weapons. They're carrying gifts. They're carrying gifts. They are here for one thing, and that is to worship the Savior who is Christ the Lord. We saw his star when it rose, it says in verse 2, and we have come to worship him. Worship. At its very core, worship is recognizing that that which you are worshiping or the person whom you are worshiping is greater than you are. And that would be no small statement for these emissaries to make. No small statement at all. 
they were ready to do this, though. They set aside their political loyalty. They rid themselves of any self-seeking motives they might have had to gain favor from the king of the Jews. They stifle their own desires because this isn't about getting something from the king of the Jews. This is about honoring him and worshiping him. And worship, it always involves sacrifice. They're not just tossing some money into the plate. They're giving their time. They're giving their attention. They're giving their resources. They're giving their selves in addition to gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because worship involves sacrifice. It involves action. They're not just talking about it. They're doing it. They are showing their allegiance by showing up. The four wise men, they're on a journey of worship. And pursuit of wisdom is a journey of transformation. I want you to look at verse 12, if you would. It says, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They returned by another route. I want to suggest that as well, they returned as different people, transformed. I say that because I don't believe that you can be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and not have it do something to you. Think about it. (laughs) If these wise men returned with nothing more than some photographs of them holding the baby, they couldn't do that, you know. Just seeing if you're paying attention. If these wise men returned with nothing more than some photographs and memories, what a waste. If they return, (laughs) the same people as they were when they left, what's the point? God called them into this journey in no small measure so that they could be transformed, moved from darkness to light. And that's what he calls each of us to, to transformation. He wants to move Steve Shields from darkness into light. He wants to move Joe McMobley from darkness into light. That's my made-up person for those of you that aren't here. He wants to move all of us from darkness into light. Lots of us have memorized a passage of scripture. And if you're looking for a good verse to memorize, I would recommend this one. It's Romans 8.28. How many, I'm not going to ask you to say it, but how many say, I think I memorized that once or twice in my life. Yeah, probably a good third, maybe more. Yeah. Let let me just read it to you. Romans 8.28 says this. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is a powerful verse. It is a beautiful verse. It is a verse that tells you that God has a plan in all things, and it involves goodness. That's a verse worth hanging on to. The very next verse is interesting as well. Because in Romans 8, 29, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that they may be he may be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Okay. God's call to you, his plan for you, is for you to become like his son, Jesus. That means good. It means holy. It means gracious. It means merciful, kind, gentle, patient, like Jesus. 
You see, some people would pursue wisdom because of what they can get. I I need some wisdom. I just inherited a lot of money. I need wisdom. Some people pursue wisdom because of what they can gain from that or the pleasure that they can get from it. Or some people pursue it so they can avoid pain. Oh, I got this bad thing coming up. I'm going to need wisdom on how to deal with that. (laughs) Listen, the best wisdom you can pursue is the wisdom that shows you how to better reflect God's son. Because that is your calling. That is your vocation as a human being planted on this earth. That is a wisdom that I want to pursue. Because only that wisdom moves me from darkness into light. So how are we doing at that? How are you doing at that? Don't answer out loud. (laughs) Are you pursuing wisdom? These are good questions to ask as we're coming to the Lord's Supper and when, when I think about it, I think all that I've been saying here is encapsulated in, in God's word in Romans 12 and verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't miss the first thing it says there, the in view of God's mercy line, because that is where it starts. When you recognize God's mercy, where do you find that? I'm going to tell you where you find that. It's a cross of Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. It's a cross of Calvary. So ask yourself, as you come to communion, am I trusting God's mercy? Am I resting in God's mercy? By the way, that's how you get saved. You turn from your own sin and you trust in Christ's mercy, his work on the cross. When you see your own shortcomings, when you see, when you see who you are in contrast to who Jesus is, you know, I'm going to need some mercy. <laughs> I'm going to need some mercy. And here it is. When you turn to Jesus and ask him for mercy, he says, I thought you'd never ask. I thought you'd never ask. Of course, he knew you would ask because he's God. But you get the point, right? When you turn to God and ask for mercy, you receive it. That's what communion is all about. That's what this little cup is all about. The bread, it represents Jesus' body that was nailed to a cross for our sins. So he could take the punishment, we could have mercy. The cup, it represents his blood which was shed on a cross for our sins so he could take the punishment so we could receive mercy. And trusting God's mercy, that's how it all begins. If you've never done that, now's the time. It's just a simple matter of in the quietness of your own thoughts, just saying, God, I know I need mercy. I want to turn away from, from the stuff I've done that is just shameful. I am sorry for that. I trust that Jesus died on a cross for me. I will follow him. And that's really what being saved is, turning from your own sin, trusting in Christ's work on the cross. You trust in God's mercy to forgive you and get you on a path toward light, toward wisdom, toward him alone. It's a good time to ask, am I trusting in God's mercy? Another question to ask is, am I worshiping God in sacrificial ways? Have you heard the phrase, a marriage of convenience? That's something you only hear, at least I only hear when I'm watching some thing my wife's making me watch on Netflix. 
Not really. Not really. She rolls her eyes like, really? I don't do that. I married a really good woman. She doesn't make me watch any Hallmark. And I thought I'd have an amen from a couple guys on that. You're, you're afraid, aren't you? You're afraid to say amen out loud because she's right here. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Marriage of convenience. Webster defines that as a marriage contracted for social, political, or economic advantage rather than mutual affection. We want a relationship where, where there is mutual affection. None of us wants a marriage of convenience. We don't want a spouse who does the things a spouse is supposed to do because it's part of the contract. We want a relationship where those things are done out of love. That's what God wants. That's what God wants. And that's sacrificial worship. That's what God gives. His sacrificial self and communion reminds us of that sacrifice. So as you come to communion today, ask yourself, if your relationship is based on more than relationship with God, it's based on more than just expedience, convenience. Are you showing your love for him in your life of worship in sacrificial ways? And as you do this, a third question to ask yourself is, am I cooperating with the changes God makes in my heart or the ones he wants to make? That is a large part of the journey. <laughs> a large part. A lot of people, they're like, yeah, I'll I'll take the mercy and, uh, yeah, I like the sacrificial ways. I'll go ahead and sing the songs and stuff. I don't know if I want God to make the changes that he might be leading me to make. But listen, as you seek wisdom, you see those are great changes. Those are the exact changes that your deep, deep heart wants. Finding light in Christ, cooperating with him as his spirit changes us, hungering for him, looking for him? Hmm. Those aren't bad questions. Are you trusting in God's mercy? Are you worshiping God in sacrificial ways? Are you cooperating with the changes he's making in your heart? I want to pray that you'd be doing that as we prepare for communion. And if you would, would you stand with me as we unite our hearts in prayer? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful for the mercy that is available to us, that you demonstrated your love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if we look to you for mercy, you give it abundantly and freely because you paid the tab, you paid the bill. I pray that each one of us here is trusting in your mercy, not in our own good deeds, not in our church attendance, not in all the check boxes that we make in our life to be a good Clearfield County person, but in your mercy, because you paid it all. I pray that we would turn to you and trust you in that regard. I pray as well, Father, that we would be worshiping you, not out of routine, not out of just expedience, not because it's convenient to do so, but that we would worship you out of hearts of love, willingly sacrificing for you, giving up things that uh, really have no value in the sense of eternity, and embracing you, the one who embraced us. I pray that we would be cooperating with the changes that you would make in our heart, God, that as your spirit leads us to be more conformed to the likeness of Jesus, your son, that we would cooperate that so that we could show that which Jesus showed. Love, joy, 
that peace would come from us and patience would be exhibited in us. That kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness would flow from us as livings of as rivers rather of living water. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and even self-control. We want to cooperate with the things that you are doing in our life for your honor and your glory. We ask you to make it so in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to celebrate communion. If you didn't pick up a communion cup, I have a couple elders in the back that are willing to help you. Is there anyone who needs a cup? Yeah, Donna needs one up here. Put your hand up if you need a cup. Donna? Okay, I just see one then. Dave or Eric will take care of Donna up front here. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And uh, then he gave them the cup and said, this cup is a New Testament in my blood. Do this as often as you take it in remembrance of me. I want to give you a moment to kind of think through those questions. And Mike, I'm going to give you this to advance it when you need to. But I want you to just think through those questions um, and others that the Spirit of God might bring to your mind. Are you trusting in God's mercy? And if you never did that, then do it now. This is the time. God, I haven't been trusting in your mercy. I kind of looked at the cross and in a way that just wasn't that significant. Forgive me for that. Forgive me for all my sins. I believe Jesus died for me. I'm going to follow him. Trust in his mercy. Are you worshiping in sacrificial ways? Take that moment to talk to God about that. Are you cooperating with the changes that God would make in your heart? And I'm going to ask one of the musicians to just take maybe 30 seconds to provide some, just some quiet music as you're giving thought to those things. Let's bow our hearts as we give quiet thought to those things. Something I say, try to say each month is uh, when we have communion, if you would rather not participate, then don't. That's fine. Um, this is an opportunity, not a mandate for you. Um, we're glad that you're able to join us just with your presence here today. And for any reason, you'd rather not participate any week. Um, that's between you and God, and we understand that. I'm going to ask one of the elders uh, who's standing in the back if they would pray a prayer of thanks for the bread, and then we'll take it together. Lord, thank you for your body that was broken and pierced for us. Thank you for the hope that you provide to us. Thank you, Lord, for you. Yes, Jesus. We pray that we would honor and glorify you in this day and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your bread taken out, we'll take it together. The body of Christ. 
The scripture says that afterward they took the cup, and I'll let you work that open (laughs) cautiously. Won't you be glad when we don't have to do this? Won't you be glad to drink this anew with him in his father's kingdom? Oh, I'm ready for that one, right? There'll be no seal on the top of it. (laughs) That'll be cool. That which you hold in your hand represents the blood of Christ, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to ask uh, David if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the blood of Christ, and we'll take it together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with grateful hearts, grateful for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, that we might have our sins forgiven, Lord. It is with great love that we accept this and that we, we uh, show this symbol in respect for the, our gratefulness to you. Thank you Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.